Amen. Well, that was uh, two new experiences for me. Never sang from my iPhone before, and I've never sang Psalm 90 congregationally before. Bailey was living his best life now during that song, weren't you, Bailey? We've been waiting a long time to sing that bad boy. Yeah, wow. It's a sweet song. Thank you guys for introducing it to us and allowing us to sing together. Well, it is joy to be back together with you tonight. Uh, I took a sip during my sentence, probably not wise. But it's a joy to be back together. We're continuing our study of 1 John tonight, so if you would just go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 2. And you guys know as we've gotten into this book over the last several weeks, months, two months, however long that's been, uh, you know that John is really concerned in this letter about assurance. He wants this church that he's writing to to have assurance, and, and I think if he were here today, he would want us to derive that same assurance, um, especially you guys in this stage of life that you're in as college students coming out of uh, childhood, really, adolescence, into adulthood. Um, learning what that means, but you're also embracing Christ, and you are growing in Him, and you're understanding really what it means to, to make your faith your own. So this book is very central for all those, all those reasons. <clears throat> and John was writing to this church, because this church in particular, uh, praise God this is not our scenario in, our, in TBC, but this church in particular was a church that it was, it was in crisis. So, we knew, we know just from past study that a number of people had left this church. We're going to see that clearly tonight in the passage before us. But they had left the church because they had abandoned uh, the truth. They had abandoned uh, John's, what John had taught, the doctrine that, of the apostles. And they were seeking to lead others astray as well. And this church was rattled by that. So they were a church in crisis, they needed assurance, they needed to make sure that they were on the right path, and John knew that, and that's why he picked up his pen to write. And tonight we're going to see probably the clearest passage on what was actually going on for this group in the first century. The clearest passage in the letter on, on the background of the letter itself, what was happening in, in this Ephesus region. And John's going to help them understand and interpret what was going on, this departure that had happened. He's going to help them understand and interpret what, what, what was happening there, and then also how to endure through it. How to endure through it. And so John has just finished, in our, in our context, he's just finished reminding us that although we're converted now, although our sins have been forgiven, although we really do know God when before we didn't, Although we have overcome the evil one, verse 14. Although all that is true, we've been redeemed. We are still in enemy territory. We're still in a world. We're dropped into a world. We're left in a world, really, that is, that is full of, of, of the enemy. Last week, we saw that we live in a world that's hostile to God and His ways. A world that loves sin promotes sin, it promotes rebellion and autonomy against God. And we saw how that's enticing still to our own hearts, even as Christians at times. 
And yet John sounded the warning for us last week, didn't he? He told us not to become enamored with the world, not to love the world. John does not want us to let the world's desires influence our own internal desires. And tonight, as, he, as John continues really on this theme, the warning also continues. <clears throat> not only do we live in a world that's hostile to God, we do, but to, to borrow Martin Luther's phrase from A Mighty Fortress, uh, this world is filled with devils, or this world with devils filled is how he says it. Devils are in the form of people who radically oppose Christ. And like the song says, they threaten to undo us. These people are highly deceptive. They either knowingly or unknowingly seek to turn people away from the Father and turn people away from His Messiah. And it's, it's becoming quite common these days to, to hear about pastors' fall, right? So we hear that these pastors, are, 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 they, they fall, they commit sin, they, they forsake the faith even. And the buzzword today that's, that's circling around is deconversion. You guys hearing that? No? You don't hear about deconversion? Raise your hand if you've heard about that. Yeah, deconversion. That's like the new buzzword flying around uh, evangelicalism. And what they mean by this is that they are, they are coming out of their conversion, so they, so they think. And this is happening across the board with, throughout evangelicalism today, but these deconverted pastors are, are not keeping their deconversion to themselves. They're actively trying to influence others in it. So, just for just some examples here, Paul Maxwell was a contributor, writer, highly influential with Desiring God, Desiring God Ministries, John Piper. And here's what he said. This is on social media. We'll talk about that tonight. But he says, I'm kind of ready not to be angry anymore. I love you guys, and I love all the friendships and support I've built here. And I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore. And it feels really good. I'm really happy. I can't wait to discover what kind of connection I can have with all of you beautiful people as I try to figure out what's next. Apparently he has a lot of followers. I love you guys. I'm in a really good spot. Probably the best spot of my life. I'm so full of joy for the first time. I love my life for the first time. And I love myself for the first time. And I hope I can share that with you. So the deconverted pastors are still trying to influence. Joshua Harris is another sad example. He's deconverted. And, uh, and now, of course, He's still seeking to try to influence people, uh, this time out of, the, out of the problems that he caused by Ica stating goodbye. And uh, if you're so fortunate, you can actually pay $275 of what it is, and you can pay him that, and then he'll, he'll help you uh, come out of the damage he caused by, by, that, by that false teaching, he says, of Ica stating goodbye. His oppressive and abusive Christian views. Uh, he's very much still trying to influence and still trying to monetize, uh, monetize his influence. But much more subtle are the pastors who remain in the pulpit, 
Okay? They're not just coming out and they're not saying, I've deconverted from Christianity, but they're still influencing. They've drifted from the scriptures, as we'll see tonight, and they're still seeking to actively influence. So, it's all around us, John's going to say, and if we're going to live here, and we do live here, then we need a strategy to endure to the end. So John's going to give us that strategy tonight in our passage. It's a strategy for withstanding the deceptive influences of false teachers. That's really what we're going to see. It's a strategy for withstanding the deceptive influence of false teachers. All right, and he's going to give us four insights. So that's where we're headed. Four, well, actually, maybe more than that now. I'm going to change my outline. It might be five. Let me check. There are five. Five insights. Five insights that are going to help us endure. Help us endure the, and, and withstand these, these influences that are coming at us. So let's just read the text and then we'll, we'll walk through some of these insights. Beginning in verse 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. This is chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you, will abide, you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. So this is at least part of John's strategy to help us to endure to the end, to help us withstand the influence of these false teachers. And like I said, he's giving us, he's giving us four insights, in this, or five insights in this passage. Um, and here's the first one. He wants us to know the time. Know the time. Know the time that we live in. He wants us to know that it is the last hour. I'm just saying, know the time. Know the time. Know that it's the last hour. See that in verse 18. It says, children, it is the last hour. He says, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so how many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. So we're certain about this. So the first the first insight that we need to know is, according to John, is that, is that we need to know the time in which we live. We need to know that we are in the last hour. And this raises an obvious question, doesn't it? What exactly is the last hour? <laughs> what, is, what is he talking about here? This is the only time in John's writings that he uses this exact phrase in this verse, the last hour. So you can't really scan John's writings and figure out what this phrase means. Uh, for John, though, I think, we could talk about this later, but 
this phrase refers to the period of time after the first coming of Jesus and before his return. So it's the period after the first coming of Jesus, kind of between the comings, if you want to put it that way. Between the comings of Jesus. It's the period of time predicted by Israel's prophets when the opposition against the Messiah will increase. So Israel's prophets predicted these days, this hour, and it's the time when the, when the opposition against God's people, and particularly the Messiah, would increase. And it's one way that John refers to the period of the last days. So sometimes you hear that phrase thrown around, the last days. Or the tribulation with a little t. And in this period, according to the scripture, deception and opposition abound. Deception, about, deception in the truth and opposition toward the truth. It abounds in this period. And John tells us that the church, as we await the return of Christ, is living in this time. And both Peter and Paul tell us that living the last days will not be easy. All right, just a few references here. 2 Timothy 3. Paul says there will be times of difficulty because of escalated sin during this period, during this period between the comings of Christ. Escalated sin, escalated rebellion, escalated opposition, and that will mean life will be hard, particularly for believers. It's not just Paul that talks about this. Peter also reminds his audience in 2 Peter 3, he reminds them of the predictions of the Hebrew prophets, as well as Jesus himself, that they predicted that scoffers will arise in the last days, following their own sinful desires, trying to lead others astray as well. And so Peter was warning his church about these scoffers, that it was, that it was predicted by the prophets, predicted by Christ, and now they're here. And so why, why does John just really, right out of the gate, want, these, want us to know that we're in the last hour? Because I think it helps to regulate our expectations. Especially for us Americans, when life is pretty good. We haven't experienced a whole lot of, of persecution. At least not yet. John wants us to know that we are living in a period when we experience opposition. And we will, very soon. We already are. And it's going to continue to escalate here in the United States, in the West. Because we're in a, we're in a clash of worldviews and there's a new worldview that's taken over. So it's only a matter of time before uh, the church begins to be directly persecuted. And knowing that we live in the last days helps us to expect this. This is the norm of the last days. And even though maybe we haven't experienced this, there are more martyrs today than have ever existed. Than have ever existed in church history. Today there are more martyrs than have ever existed in church history. And John wants us to know that we're living in the fulfillment of something that the, that the Bible predicted. We are privileged to live in this period, and we should expect that it will be difficult and not easy. All right. So he's help, helping us right out of the gate to kind of regulate our perspective, because we think that life should be easy. And when it's not, we complain, we get angry, uh, we grumble, we self-pity, right? 
And it's all because that we don't have this lens that we are living in the days of fulfillment, in the last hour. And we have a tremendous opportunity in the midst of difficulty to shine like star, the stars of heaven. To stay faithful in persecution, to stay faithful in difficulty, and glorify the Father in this unique period of time. We're going to see that the last days bring with it other blessings, not just difficulties. We're going to see that in a, in a moment. But for now, he wants us to recognize that we're in the last hour. But that's not all he says. And that brings us to our, our second insight that we've got to have. And he, he says we have to know the opposition. Know the opposition. We have to know that there are many antichrists right now. We've got to know the opposition, that the last days bring with it much opposition in the form of antichrists. That's what he calls them, antichrists. And that confirms, then, that it is the last hour. Now notice, he says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist, singular, is coming, so now many antichrists, plural, have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We know, that, we know that we're living in this fulfillment because of the presence of antichrists. So we've got to know the opposition. That raises another question, doesn't it? What is or who are, who is the antichrist, antichrists? What's he talking about? How can John say there are many antichrists? Questions like these abound. Well, here's a few sub-points. All right, you ready? Sub-point number one. John, for John, these antichrists prefigure the antichrist. Okay, so here's some, here's some statements that are going to help us understand what's going on here in, in John's world. Something, we need to know some things about the, the antichrists, and number one, they prefigure the antichrist. Okay? They prefigure the antichrist. And you see that in verse 18. We've heard that antichrist is coming, and now many antichrists have come. So what's he saying? He's saying that, they, that, that the many prefigure the one. And let's take a quick step back just to kind of get our bearings here about all this language about Antichrist and some of that stuff, okay? This is, in 1 John is the only time we have that term in the Bible, Antichrist. So he, he, this, is, this letter is where, we, is where we get this idea from. But the concept is throughout the Bible. Israel's prophets had long predicted that the rise of a regal figure, of a king, they predicted this rise of, of this man, and he would, that he would climactically oppose God's Messiah, and he would ravage God's people. Now, if you want references on that, you can write down Daniel 7, 21, verse 21, verse 25, Daniel 8, verses 23 through 25, Daniel 9, verses 26 through 27, so he kind of hits it from, Daniel hits it from multiple angles, but he's talking about this, this final figure, this final king, ruler, who would climactically oppose God's Messiah and he would ravage God's people. He would kill them. And this, this man will be highly deceptive, the prophets say, and so as a result he'll be very uh, dangerous, he'll be a very real threat to the fidelity of God's people. But, 
it also says he would be proud and ultimately ruthless toward God's people. So he'll be deceptive, able to lead many astray, and he will be ruthless in the end to the faithful, to the elect. Well, both Jesus and his apostles continued to teach about the rise of this figure. This wasn't just in Daniel or some of the other prophets. Jesus and his apostles picked up on this and continued to develop it and bring, brought many strands of the Bible together on this figure. And they even taught it, like the apostles I'm thinking of, they even if you think like, wow, this seems complex, or you, know, you think about Revelation charts or some of those things, like Paul taught it to his, some of the first converts in Thessalonica like when he was there, after they converted. He wanted them to know about this figure and the coming of this figure and the significance of him. So if you want to, just keep your finger in 1 John and turn back over to 2 Thessalonians 2. I want you to see this. This is the best example of the kind of development of this figure, and we're going we're gonna to make a lot of observations about him. From 2 Thess 2, again, just getting our bearings on, we're going to come back to 1 John and see how this is relevant. So look with me, in, starting in verse 3, this church you know, was alarmed that they had somehow missed the day of the Lord. Verse 3, he says, let no one deceive you, this is 2 Thess 2, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man, singular, of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Again, he's picking up on these Old Testament ideas. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. That's from Daniel. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now notice this phrase. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This was like Discipleship 101 for Paul. And you know that what is restraining him now, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So he's not revealed yet. In other words, in verse 6, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So something's already at play even though he's not revealed yet. And he calls it the mystery of lawlessness. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, sometime in the future to Paul, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, when? By the appearance of his coming. So, this singular figure, Antichrist, will come, we're calling him Antichrist because I think it's the same, same person that John's talking about, will come at the end of history, and we know that because Jesus is going to kill him when he returns. Right here in verse, seven, verse 8 of 2 Thess 2. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And he's going to pivot and say, but God chose you and we should rejoice in that, um, that you're not going to fall prey to, to him. All right, so according to Paul, there's a singular figure. He's coming in the future. 
coming just before the return of Christ, and Jesus will kill him by the appearance of his coming. He is currently restrained, meaning that he's not on the scene yet, or at least according to Paul, in, that, in Paul's future, and if he is on the scene, we don't know who he is in our day. But notice that he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, meaning, in some sense, the period has already begun now, even though the singular Antichrist figure isn't revealed yet. You see that? And Paul had already taught the church that, that, that this, this was the, about these realities before he ever wrote this letter. So, even today, we can expect that just before Christ returns, there will be a capital A Antichrist, that's kind of how you can think of it, kind of capital A Antichrist, um, who is still yet to come before the return of Christ. Now, flip back to 1 John. John says that this church as well had already been taught about this capital A Antichrist. Notice, he says, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Now, this isn't like gossip, like, like you heard. This is, like, this is apostolic teaching. As you've heard, Antichrist is coming. So now, he says, many are already here. He's saying, just like you heard that he's coming, and he is, in another sense, many Antichrists have already come now. So, how do we put all this together? Here's how we could kind of bring all this together, the one and the many. With the first coming of Christ, he inaugurated the final hour. He set this hour in motion. He set the clock, if you will. He set this new period in motion, this period of lowercase t, tribulation. It was initiated first with his own sufferings, opposition directly against the Messiah, and they killed him. And with his resurrection then, he, he pours out his spirit on his followers, and now it continues in the sufferings of his body, the church. The Messiah's sufferings continue, not in an atonement sense, but in a fulfillment sense, in the body, as his body is persecuted. His body is destroyed, so to speak. Treaded upon. And it will climax when the final Antichrist is revealed. Capital A, Antichrist. It will climax when he is revealed. So, that means if the hour has already been set in motion, even if it hasn't been completely fulfilled yet, then it makes sense for there to be people who are anti-Jesus right now. Anti-Christ right now. Prefiguring and pointing toward the final Antichrist in the capital T tribulation. Now, if, if Antichrists are already present in John's day, who are they? Who are they? Where do they come from? What should we look for? And, and, and where should we look for them? Well, John's answer, shockingly, is that they arise from within the church. From within the church. And that's the second sub-point. These Antichrists, second thing we can know about them is that they arise within the church. You see that in, in verse 19. He says, they went out where? From us. Meaning they're from us. They're, they're from this network of churches that John is writing to. They were members of these churches. And they were, they departed, they left those churches. So shockingly, John identifies that the Antichrists are people from their own church. 
the people that disagreed with John and the other apostles, and they left over their wrong views of Jesus, as we'll see in just a minute. These are people they knew. People with names, backgrounds, histories. And they came right from within these assemblies. Now, I don't know about you, when you think of Antichrist, uh, you think of like somebody from the Middle East or Russia or somewhere out way away, right? Not for right from within the congregation itself. And this is incredibly sobering to think about. We don't often think that Antichrists might spring up from our own church, do we? But that's what happened in the church that John was writing to. And apparently they had been and still were fairly influential, even though they had left. They were still influencing these people. This means then that, that Antichrist will not always be easy to spot. In fact, they may be almost impossible to spot in the beginning, especially if they're at a distance. They're going to claim Christianity. They will arise up from within the church, and they may even preach orthodox sermons, at least at the beginning. But... If you press into their lives, you will see that they are not living what they preach. There's not integrity there. If you could get, if you could get into the, the back bedrooms or the, the private meetings or whatever they are, you're going to see that they really don't live out what they claim to believe. Before they deny the word with their mouths, they will deny the word with their lives. And before long... They will begin to twist the scriptures to match their lives. So if you don't think your hermeneutics are affected by your disobedience, you are deceived. You will twist the scriptures because of your disobedience to make it match your life. And that's what these false teachers did. They twisted the scriptures or they'll magnify certain texts and certain principles and minimize others. Or totally leave them out. In other words, they won't preach the whole counsel of what the apostles gave us in our New Covenant documents. And so those are, those are some signs here that, that are happening. And one telltale sign beyond these is what John describes here, right here in this verse. Something, a, third, a third thing we can know about these false teachers, these antichrists, is they remove themselves from church accountability. They remove themselves from church accountability. From the structures that God has set up. I.e. the local church. The elders of the church. In this case, these antichrists physically left the built, like the building, the gathering, wherever they were gathering. They, let, they departed from the the assembly, even though they were obviously still trying to influence the members away from Christ. So they left. Apparently the prayer, we don't know why, other than just the divergence. Like, why, why would you not stay and try to influence the whole church, right? And I think, just reading into this, the way it works normally is there's pressure from other areas, from other faithful leaders, other faithful church members. There's a resistance, Right? And that, that pressure, that resistance, was too great. Obviously, this letter is part of the resistance from John himself. But they had already left before that. So they splintered off 
became their own church, i.e. cult. And yet, many, in our, many times in our context, the Antichrists stay in the pulpits of their church. And they stay there because they have no accountability. They are enabled to continue peddling their false doctrines and leading many astray in the name of Christianity because they are allowed to. But if you were to get on the inside, you would see that in almost every scenario where these false teachers are maintaining their pulpits, there is a lack of genuine accountability. The false teacher is at the top, the Antichrist is at the top, and he controls the shots. The man is surrounded by others who either share his wrong views and they enjoy the perks of the lifestyle, right? They love the world, and the false teacher is bringing in worldly accolades, resources, success. And so they, they know he's unqualified. They know that he is erring. They know he doesn't preach these texts or say these things about sin or the right, but they let him stay because they enjoy the perks of the lifestyle. They love the world too. Or... They're too afraid to confront him. They perceive that the flocks and everybody that's gathering to his message, as he's tickling ears, is an evidence of success. And so who are they to speak against all these numbers, all these crowds that are coming? And so they're too afraid to confront the Antichrist in the pulpit. But he still lacks ecclesiological accountability. If there was pressure, he would leave. But there is none, so he stays. He should be removed. He should be disciplined because of his departure from the teaching of the apostles, and yet he is allowed to remain in the pulpit and continue the satanic deception. And as we're talking about the removal of accountability, we have to think this through. This shows up also on the Internet, doesn't it? Now, the Internet, along with all the information that we have there, is an incredible blessing. I'll be the first to extol the blessings of the Internet. I love the Internet. I get to learn a lot from the Internet. I renovated my house by the Internet, okay? I didn't know how to do any of that before YouTube. And some help from my father and father-in-law. So, I love the Internet, okay? I love the teachings that we can receive from faithful pastors from the Internet. But... The internet is also an incredible opportunity for these antichrists who love their autonomy. This lack of accountability shows up with the self-appointed YouTubers posing as some kind of authority when they're really not. No church has ever recognized these people. Some have even been driven out of churches. But do they mention that? No. Nor would any healthy church ever recognize some of these folks that have thousands, millions of followers. Rarely are these internet pastors or teachers actually part of healthy elder boards in local churches. Rarely are they willing to submit their channels or Instagram pages to healthy elders for review and they most likely would not stop if those elders asked them to why because they despise accountability they want to self-promote 
they often have their own thoughts or interpretations or ideas about the Bible full of personal opinion. They may even physically sit on a pew on Sunday. Or they might hop from church to church without really getting involved. But they do not submit to elders. And they promote their ideas to the world on the internet with virtually no accountability. So be very, very careful of the unverified and self-appointed pastoral voices that you hear on the internet, on podcasts, etc., etc. They may very well be antichrists. But at least in John's case, for his church, these antichrists made themselves obvious as they disagreed with John and abandoned the church. If they were living in our day, they may even say, like, like these others, they, that they deconverted, right? They deconverted from apostolic Christianity, like Joshua Harris claimed. And he's only one, like we said, of many pastors and, and influential evangelical leaders who have left the church renouncing their formerly held beliefs over the last year or two years. So what happened to these people? Did they lose their salvation? Did they truly deconvert? Is that good language to use? John would say no. John wants us to realize that just because these people once professed Christ or even taught about him passionately and accurately at one point, like Joshua Harris did, it does not mean they were real Christians. Even if they still claim Christ, if they divert from the apostles' teaching, John goes on to say about these antichrists, number four, that they were never part of the true church. They were never part of the true church. They never belonged to Christ. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. It's kind of a play on words. Literally, it's they went out from us, but they were not from us. What? They went out from us, but they were not from us. It's one of those statements that John wants you to think about for a minute. What he means is they went out from us because they were not truly from us. For if, he says, they had been of us or truly from us, they would have continued with us. They would have abided with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not, they all are not of us. So they went out for a purpose that it might become plain to reveal something, that they are not of us. So John's saying they were never part of the true church. Even though they professed Christ, even though they, they came up from within the church, even though they preached compelling sermons, John says they really weren't from the church. Because if they were truly born of God, John says they would have persevered in the faith. They would have continued with us, he says. Now, how can he make that kind of statement? Because John knows that Jesus never loses his sheep. He never loses one of those whom he's called. His sheep hear his voice. They follow him. He doesn't lose one, he says. He loves them to the end. He causes them to persevere. He doesn't lose one of his sheep because Christ is seated far above the Antichrist and the Satan behind him. And he won't let that happen. 
So John says their departure from the church, both physically and theologically, makes something very clear. They departed that it might become plain that they are not of us, he says. It reveals their true state as an unbeliever that they were never converted to begin with. And not only are they unbelievers, John says, but they are antichrists. They are in opposition to Christ, and they are trying to deceive others in it. Now, just give a quick caveat that John doesn't give, but other scripture does. He's not saying that these men are past the point of repentance now. Okay? Paul put two false teachers out of the church, and here's why. That they might learn not to blaspheme in 1 Timothy 1.20. Paul put these teachers out of the church that were, that were heretical for a purpose. It was a redemptive purpose, so that they might learn not to do that, not to, not to say those blasphemous things about the truth. Implication? They would repent and come back and be received back into the assembly. So if these teachers arise within our own church, we would warn them, we would discipline them like the scriptures say, we would discipline them out if they don't repent in hopes that they would repent and come to a true knowledge of Christ. Lord willing, that's how we would handle these issues. And that's John's point here. Their departure, their, pre their, their, their perversion of the truth, it reveals they were never genuine believers to begin with. Okay? It's, a, it's like a revelation there of, of where they're at. Now, in light of how subtle these false teachers can be, in light of how many there are, notice he says there's many of them, right? In light of that, I think there's the temptation to react in fear for the believer. How do I know that I won't fall away? How do I know I won't get swept up into denying Christ? Well, where John goes next is incredibly encouraging. It's very unexpected, at least to me. And that leads us to the, to the third reality, kind of back to our major points here, our third reality that we need to recognize, our third insight. We need to know our provision. We need to know the provision that God's, God's given, He's made for us. And that provision is the illuminating spirit. The illuminating spirit. That's his provision that he's made for us. We need to know the provision, and the provision is his spirit. So look in, in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now that's interesting. Seems like an abrupt change here in topic, right? In these verses, John does pivot, but it's very related. He pivots from talking about the Antichrist to talking about the church. And he assures them that we've already been given what we need, what he calls the anointing. All right? The anointing and its result. And the result of the anointing is knowledge, he says. Knowledge. So what does he mean by this? By the anointing. Sounds, sounds good, doesn't it? Well, this word anointing describes anointing oil in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So it's oil, actual oil, that's used to anoint the priests, the Aaronic priests and others. So that's about all we've got, okay, with the actual word itself. However, it's helpful to know 
okay, that this word shares the same root with, the, with several other words in this context. Hang with me here. I know it's hot, okay? Just kind of do this. Pour some water on your face if you need to, okay? I don't know why it's hot, but it is hot. Probably related to the PowerPoint. Just made that up. Okay, let's keep going. All right, this word, anointing, is related to other words, okay? It shares the same root with other words in this context, okay? With Christ and Antichrist, okay? Christ, Antichrist. If I say them in Greek, you can hear their relationships, okay? Anointing is charisma, okay? You hear that? Charisma. And then you, Christ is Christos. And Antichrist is, ready for it? Antichristos. Okay? They all sit, share the same root, creo. And you can hear it, cre, creo, which is the verb to anoint. So Christ, as you know, means anointed one, and Antichrist means the opposer of the anointed one. So why am I dragging you through all that? Well, because John's contrasting us with the Antichrists. We have the messianic anointing, not them. They are anti-Christ, <laughs> not that, right? And we are the anointing. But what is it? Well, we have a clue in this verse. The anointing comes from the Holy One, all right? In John's Gospel and in Revelation, this term is used most frequently for Christ, for Jesus, okay? Now, you hear Holy One and you think Holy Spirit, but actually John uses it for Jesus, so the picture here, I think, is that Christ, the Holy One, gives his anointing, his spirit, to his people. As he was anointed with the spirit, so to speak, he anoints us with the same spirit upon our conversion. Now, why is that significant? Because John says we all have knowledge as a result of his spirit. And he goes on to, to, to be specific in this verse. We have the knowledge of the truth. In fact, John is so certain that we have this knowledge because of the Spirit that he can claim that he's not writing because we don't know the truth, but because we do know it. So, in other words, to have the Spirit is to have illumination in the truth. He reveals truth to us, and he helps us to yield to it. Let me say it negatively. You cannot know truth or yield to it without the Spirit. John is alluding to a number of places in the scriptures that predict this, this positive side of this final hour, these last days. Not only is it a time of opposition like we saw earlier, but it's also a time when God promised to pour out his spirit to his followers and to give them new hearts in the last days. One prediction like this is Jeremiah 31, where the, the prophet predicts that God will make a new covenant with his people where one of the distinctives is, listen, they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. That's Jeremiah 31, 34. And that's what John's getting at when he says that we all, each one of us, we all have knowledge. Every member has knowledge. Every member of the covenant has knowledge in the new covenant. We each truly know Christ via his Spirit. And not only is John confident that we have truly known Christ, but he's confident that every true believer will continue to have truth confirmed to them via the Spirit's presence. 
This is like a dump truck load of encouragement. If your heart is anxious about all the false teachings surrounding you, John intends you to take tremendous comfort in what he's saying. How so? If you have believed in Jesus, John proclaims this reveals you have been born by God himself. This reveals that he has given you his spirit. You didn't recognize the Messiah by yourself. He revealed himself to you through his spirit. He opened your eyes. You heard the shepherd's voice and you yielded to his voice because he opened your ears to hear it and to recognize it as truth. You don't have any capacity to do that in yourself. He helped you see your sin and he helped you hear his sweet voice that was too compelling to you to resist. He has bound himself to you and his spirit's presence in your life is the guarantee you will continue to recognize what's true and what's not. Isn't that a glorious reality that engenders deep humility from us and humble confidence in the future? It is. And here's the next question, right? So how will the Spirit continue to confirm the truth to us? How do we gain discernment? Does he just zap us with the truth in our experience? Some would have you believe. Does he speak to us in the still small voice and give us new revelation in our hearts to direct us? Is that what John says here? No. That is not the anointing. The spirit, John says, he will say, works through his word. John knows this, and that's why John is taking the time to write inspired scripture to them. Spirit-inspired scripture. So we definitely need to recognize that we have the Spirit, and we need to be encouraged by that, but we also need to realize that the Spirit grants clarity as we come to recognize the truth by faith. And no other way. So, John continues on in this passage. He doesn't just say, you have the Spirit, so you'll be okay. You have the anointing, hallelujah, right? He goes on, to say, yes, you have the anointing, hallelujah. But how does that spirit work out that clarity? He says, he spells out the specific error of these teachers so that the true church won't get sidelined. So that means, number four, the next essential uh, insight is we need to know the falsehood. And we're going to go quickly through these last two points, okay? So I know we're running over. But quickly through these last two, and I'll probably come back and talk more about them next week. We've got to know the falsehood Part of John's strategy, we've got to know the falsehood, and that falsehood is the denial of Christ. We have to know what the lies are from these false teachers, from these antichrists, and they deny Jesus. So now, we'll look, look with me in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Why does he go through all that? He's spelling out for them what the, what the issues are. He gets specific to help us understand exactly what these antichrists are saying. So the Spirit has something to work with. And as he says, they are de- he, he says that they're denying that Jesus of Nazareth, that that historical person, is the Christ. 
And like we've mentioned before, this denial had something to do with the fact that they didn't believe that Christ really came in bodily form. He's, he was not, the Christ was something outside of this bodily form. And outside of Jesus, Messiah. Or outside of Jesus of Nazareth, excuse me. They were also likely downplaying the atonement as a result. But whatever the case, the reality is, we don't know a whole lot on our end about the specifics of what they taught. We just know this, that in some sense they had denied that Jesus was the Christ. Although they professed to know and love God, their lives are also a mess. Okay? There was a denial of doctrine, and their lives reflected the mess. But whatever was going on, okay, the point's clear. They are departing from what John, the apostle, as well as the other apostles had taught. In this case, they were departing from his Christology. And John's leaving no doubts about this, right? We just read that. I mean, he's spelling it out for them. You can't have the Father. If you're going to deny the Son, you can't have the Father. Because they claim they know God. They don't. Black and white. No middle ground. No other option. And he calls them antichrists. This means then, as we think about this for our context, that any knowing departure from the apostles' doctrine, any calculated departure from what the scriptures clearly teach, any calculated minimization of what the Bible says is a telltale sign of the spirit of antichrist. Lies do not originate from the truth, John says. And anyone who is willingly teaching anything that is contrary to what the scriptures say, these people are liars, John says. They are antichrists. But how will the Spirit help us discern this error? Yes, we know the negative side, so we've got to, we've got to know, know the falsehood. But there's also a positive side. The best antidote to error is truth. Truth. And that's John's final insight for us, okay? We're going to wrap it up here. His only command to us in this passage, he says we must know the solution. We're going to have a strategy. We must know the solution. And the solution is continuing in the truth. In his words, letting the truth, letting what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Know the solution. And the solution is continuing in the truth. Look in verse 24. Let what you have heard, this is the only command in the passage, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So John commands us here to let something abide in us and remain in us. So what's supposed to abide according to John? It's what he says this church has heard from the beginning. What's that? Well, he's talked about it throughout this letter already. It's the, it's the apostolic gospel. It's the apostles' doctrine. It's the truth that they disseminated about the new covenant, about Jesus, about what he's done, the significance of his death, about how it should transform our lives. It was taught to them at their conversion, and, and it was the message of eternal life, he says here in this, in this text. Verse 25, it's the promise he made to us of eternal life. And, and I think by implication, it's what John continues to provide for them in this letter. So, do you realize that we have more than John's church had? 
They may have had access to John himself. That's pretty cool. Um, Not denying that. But by God's grace, we have every single document that God wanted us to have. Every bit of truth about the new covenant, everything we need preserved for us in the Bible, and particularly the new covenant. I'm not putting that above the old. I'm just saying it interprets the old. helps us learn to apply the old. And it's preserved for us in, in Scripture. So, in other words, he's given us every single truth the Spirit uses, the anointing uses, to guide us into all truth and into fruitful living. We're going to get into that more next week, but I just wanted to, to go full circle here and show you this whole passage of John's strategy as he lays it out. Because, man, we can talk, there's lots of things we can talk through about how to let, the, how to let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, right? <laughs> That's like an entire sermon by itself. But... That's his solution, to let what we've heard from the beginning abide in us. And we'll get more into that next week. I just wanted to point it out to you here so we can go full circle with the argument. All right? So that's John's strategy for how we should endure. All right? His whole strategy. I know we don't have PowerPoints. So you can't look up there. So we've got to know the time. We've got to know this is the last hour and what that means. We've got to know that there's opposition. We've got to know there's many antichrists right now that are prefiguring the antichrist who's coming. We have to know the provision that he's given to us, which is the spirit who illumines truth. That didn't come from us. That was granted to us freely by, by the Lord. So we should take tremendous encouragement with that. We won't ultimately be deceived. But we have to educate ourselves, number four, with the falsehood. What is, what is, what's circling around today for us in our culture is the spirit of Antichrist. It's leading, seeking to leave professing believers astray. Number five, we've got another solution, which is continuing in the truth. And so if we come back to a mighty fortress uh, and we complete the stanza, where we started at the beginning. It is eerily similar to this passage. He says, listen to the confidence. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. He's talking about the word of Christ when he returns. He's going to kill him by the words of his mouth. One little word shall fail him. That word, now he's talking about Jesus, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. It's actually predicted. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for equipping us with such a comprehensive strategy to withstand uh, the onslaught of antichrists that are already in the world. We pray for continued discernment, for continued love for our enemies, that we would continue to move forward in the power of your spirit, with, in, uh, equipped with your truth, to speak with clarity in this world, um, to see your mighty word 
fail the enemy and raise up your sheep. We'll give you glory for it in Christ's name.